the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. That is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings, and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Are you not from eternity, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You've made mankind like the fish of the sea like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death he is never satisfied. Let me just give a disclaimer before I preach. As you know, I've been struggling with some headaches, and so I'm on some medication. That's making me a little loopy. I'll do the best I can to get through the text, but this is on my heart. I really wanted to preach this. I did not want to preach. So please be patient with me as we go through Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Has anybody ever heard of cognitive dissonance? Cognitive dissonance. Fancy. 
statement. It's a psychological tension that takes place when someone believes something for so long and all of a sudden someone's saying something different about their belief system. It happens to a lot of college students that grew up in the faith and they're not strong in the faith and they'll go off the college campus and they'll hear all the radical liberal professors telling them that the word of God is, is false, you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust God, Jesus Christ was just a man, and so on and so forth. And someone who's not strong in the faith will go through a very uh, time of uh, uncomfortability, intellectual, psychological, theological, spiritual uncomfortability. Someone's challenging what I already believe in. Someone's telling me it's wrong. And they'll go through this uncomfortability, this intellectual uncomfortability. But why am I feeling uncomfortable? They're attacking my faith. I know when I first got saved, uh, I think anybody who got saved, you go through these kind of things. For me, I went through a couple of them, me and my wife. Abortion was an issue. I really thought there was nothing wrong with abortion. It took a long time. It took several years before my eyes were opened up to see the, the sacredness of life. And that though I believed, I didn't really give it much thought. I said, wow, how did I believe that? How did I embrace that? Even as a Christian, I was like, that's no big deal. And you have to understand, we're all on a learning curve when it comes to our faith in God. Amen? Habakkuk's on a learning curve, and we're going to see that in our text tonight. The one that really got me, that took me about 15 years to really cement it in my heart, is something called depravity, total depravity. That every human being is totally depraved in their nature. It doesn't mean they're the worst that they could be. It means that every faculty of their humanity, their mind, their will, and emotions are affected by sin. Every human being is totally depraved, though we don't act according to it. It was only about maybe 12, 15 years in that time of much reflection, much study, and just an observation of my own heart, along with the observation of life, and to realize that that is a real truth. Humanity is part of a creature that has fallen from the grace of God. And without it, we are depraved. There's no good thing that dwells in us. And, and, and that's what Habakkuk, in a sense, is going through tonight. He's going through this cognitive dissonance. He's going through this, this, this new understanding of just how bad things really are. And he has to come to this. And as we saw in our first study of Habakkuk, we're, we're looking at Habakkuk's cry for justice. For it seems that God is indifferent to the suffering and the violence that he sees in Jerusalem and Judea. He sees destruction. He sees chaos. Uh, he wants God to do something. He sees the law being paralyzed. Uh, it seems good people are getting the worst end of the straw. They're getting the wrong end. Well, the bad people seem to be what? They're prospering. Happy-go-lucky, good time Charlie is just, just going along. He's watching Judah and Jerusalem perish under corrupt leadership. The priests are corrupt. The prophets are corrupt. The kings are corrupt. They're all corrupt. The leadership, the elders of Israel are corrupt. And those who truly want to live by faith, who are righteous in God's eyes, are getting the brunt end of it. And he's crying out. 
He wants to know how long, oh God, are you going to just simply idly is the word. It means to be indifferent. You idly stand by God. I'm perplexed. It's bad enough I'm watching evil men prosper. It's bad enough I'm watching good people suffer. But I'm also watching you seemingly doing nothing at all. Are you indifferent to human suffering? These are your people, Father. These are the poor in spirit. And he's waiting. And God's faithful. Our questions don't intimidate God. Habakkuk's question didn't intimidate God. God had an answer. And God gives that answer to his complaint. And we saw that last week. It's not what Habakkuk expected, though. Habakkuk receives a message that is more perplexing than the situation he's complaining about. God has not been idle. As a matter of fact, he's been very active in dealing with the corruption that's in Jerusalem, and he's doing it two ways. Always two ways. First, he's being what he always is. He's patient, and he's kind, he's forbearing, and he's long-suffering, because he wants want no one to perish. Because it's God's goodness and kindness that leads a man to repentance. So he's being patient with the disobedient and he's sending prophets after prophets to warn them. He sent them Jeremiah, he sent them Nahum, he sent them Zephaniah, he sent them uh, Habakkuk, and he sent others too. And he's sending them over and over to repent and come back to God. But simultaneously, he's also raising up an army more wicked than the hard-hearted Israelites. This is what gets Habakkuk. Are you telling me, God, you're going to raise up a more wicked nation against the righteous? All of a sudden, the, the Israelites are righteous in his mind. He was just complaining about them. Now, all of a sudden, things have changed. This is not the answer that Habakkuk wanted. As a matter of fact, this just adds more confusion to Habakkuk's state of mind. This answer is sort of backwards. And it gets the prophet questioning God. He's, he's settled in one sense, but you know what we said before? We said this last week. You ask one question, you get an answer from God. It gets you to do what? Ask more questions. Because there's no one word answer. And we said this last week, and I say it all the time. When someone says they just want the quick answer, I say it's your sin. That's the quick answer. You want the quick answer, it's your sin, and Christ died for you. Okay, if you want the long answer, let's sit down, let's get to know each other, let's go through the Bible, and I'll explain to you a narrative from from God's point of view called redemptive history. Something happened when God created the garden, and God created man in his image, and God gave him a right to rule over this world. Mankind took it upon himself to live independently from God, and that's why bombs are going off everywhere. That's why. Give me a couple of hours, give me a couple of weeks, let's pray together. And I'll give you the long answer. I'll give you a more thorough answer. Why would God have a cup of saying? We remember this from last week. Never say God wouldn't do that. Are you a Christian? Never say God would never do that. Be careful. Because that's what Habakkuk is thinking. And he's saying, why would God use a more wicked nation to swallow up the man more righteous than himself? Cognitive discipline doesn't compute. His understanding of God is now not computing. Something's wrong. God, 
how are you using a more wicked nation to swallow up the righteous? This doesn't compute, God. I asked you a question, I prayed, and this is the answer? No, 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 there's got to be something else, God. Remember, be careful what you pray for, right? God will answer us, and sometimes it's the answer that gets us more perplexed than why we asked in the first place. But God is teaching his prophets something about divine justice. You see, Habakkuk was looking at the whole situation from his little itsy-bitsy world. His little Jerusalem. His little Judea. And he's looking, he's like, oh, look at my little world. Look what they're doing to us. Look what's happening here. My little geographical location. And Habakkuk's treating God like some, some household deity that's supposed to just bring a blessing to the house. You know, wave the magic wand. And, you know, we all had it. We had the figurine of Mary. We had St. Joseph. We had this. And we went through the ritual to bring some kind of blessing upon the home. Didn't we do that as Catholics? It's superstition. And Habakkuk's crying out. Said, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And what's the answer? God tells Habakkuk to look and see. Look outside Jerusalem. Look outside your own little world. Look outside your own little complaint. And get a, get a, get a world view politically of what's taking place. Because I'm at work. Because my justice doesn't come out and put a little fire of injustice out over here. And then we run over here. And then, well, here's another fire over here. Put this one out, God. And then God deals with it all. Yes. Universally. The Christian has an answer to life. The world doesn't want to hear it. So when people say, how can this happen? Again, I say, well, you want to sit down and talk about it? Oh, you got the want the long answer or the short answer? That's what Habakkuk is learning. He had to learn that God is not some local deity who runs around cleaning up local corruption. And I bring this whole, up, this whole uh, series on Habakkuk up because what's taking place in America? You know, we're, we're outraged. I'm outraged. I'm watching the, the slow, maybe even quick destruction of a good nation. We're good. We're sinners. But compared to the world, we have a lot to offer. And we're watching this slow, meticulous, systematic, re- social rearranging of the life we live in. They're taking God out of the equation. When we need God more than ever, they're taking God out of the equation. We're watching religious freedoms being shut up. It looks like the Christian faith is losing. It looks like the church is losing. It looks like the bad guys are winning. And, and we want what? We want what justice. Have a cup wanted justice but Habakkuk had to look and say get out of your own little nation get out of your own little town look globally get a global perspective of what is taking place God doesn't just see local corruption he sees universally and his ends have this in purpose in mind A new heaven and a new earth. Not just a new little America and not just a new little town. He's dealing with everything brand new. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. The heavens and the earth themselves, the foundations of the universe are going to be shaken. 
God, this doesn't want to make you a little better. Oh God, make me a better Brian Martin. No, God wants to crush the old Brian Martin and raise up a new man. Same thing he wants to do with you. He crucifies the old. There's nothing to do with it anymore. He does the same thing nationally, politically, geographically. It's all new. God is moving towards a new heaven and a new earth. And Habakkuk has to get this. He's like, oh. It's almost like you can see him shaking like a drunken sailor. Like, what are you? And we get into this in chapter 3. He's like, how do I even say such a complaint when you get to chapter 3? He can't even believe what he has actually said. When he gets a revelation of the, how enormous God is and what he's doing on a global universal scale that's outside Habakkuk's comprehension that God actually has to tell him, if I don't tell you, you wouldn't even understand it if I told you. I explained the last week. It's so outside the realm of Habakkuk's thinking that if another man were to tell Habakkuk, God's raising up a more wicked nation, Habakkuk would have said, no way. Absolutely not. My God wouldn't do that. But God told him personally, in a vision, from the Lord's mouth himself, there's no denying what he had just heard. Habakkuk had to come to the revelation that he and his nation were part of a greater problem. You and I have to come to a revelation as we are on the learning curve with God and our relationship with God that we're part of a bigger problem in the world today. It's not just what's taking place in America. It's not just some religious freedoms taken away. The world hates God. Amen. I'm going to say it again. The world hates God. While you, 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 you and I were still his enemies, the scripture says. Paul says that Christ died for us. When we were still hostile in mind, Colossians, Ephesians, when you were still hostile in mind indeed, Christ died for you. I had to come to a revelation one day that I wasn't always in high sky. There was a time in me that I loved sin. I loved rebellion. I loved disobedience. I enjoyed it. I hated the consequences most of the time. But man, don't take away my liberty. Don't take away my freedom. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my faith. God, leave me alone. Did anybody else live like that? Did we suffer under the consequences of independence? Away from God? Habakkuk had to learn that this problem calls for drastic measures. At first, God's answer seems unfair and discouraging to the prophet. How could the everlasting God, he says, how could the Lord, he says, how could the Holy One of Israel, how can the rock of Israel allow this? How can God who birthed Israel, Israel who's the apple of his eye, how could God allow a disaster to come on his own people? Though he's confused and he's perplexed, he knows something here. There's a growing stage. He says this, 
but we shall not die. I don't have it all figured out, God. But I know you have ordained wicked people to come upon the righteous who are backslidden and whose hearts are far away from you. You've sent them prophets. You've warned them from Moses on and they've rebelled against you. Now you are raising up. You are deliberately determined to raise up the more wicked people to bring discipline to your own people. I get it, God. I get it. But I know we're not going to die. As a nation, God... I know we're going to survive. You know what what that means? You and I would say this, God, the world is against us, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against the gospel. That's what Habakkuk is saying. Habakkuk saying, oh, oh, I'm glad I'm not going to die. Oh, thank you, God, I'm not going to die. Everybody else is going to get it, but I'm going to survive. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, even if I die, even if you slay me, I'm going to believe in you, God, because I know the gates of hell won't prevail against Israel. You'll raise us up out of the ashes again. We shall not die, though you discipline us by a more wicked nation. Though it seems from his puny little perspective that God made man like fish, that other wicked fishermen used used men as sport, that's the Babylonians, it's a metaphor, and the wicked people seem to prosper And they enjoy the fruit of their wickedness and the fruit of their evil labor. And their wicked expedition will have no end. It seems it has no end. In this metaphor, he says this in verse 17. Is he the Babylonian then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I know you read the Old Testament, you're like, what is this metaphor? This is what he's saying. Habakkuk is asking a timeless question. When will the madness stop? When's it going to stop? It seems like they just constantly are winning. It's, it's one bad nation after we get no reprieve at all. And if we get a little bit, someone else rises up. Will there ever be peace on earth? See, he's getting the picture. It's not just about Jerusalem. Not just about the nation of Israel. Not just about his own personal life. He's realizing this is something much grander and greater than he can comprehend. When is the madness going to stop, God? Is it another bomb we need? Do we need another war? Do we need a new leader? Is it a new president, a new administration? Is this world ever going to change? He's caught up in the drama. He's caught up in the dilemma. He, he, He needs to know. Will it ever change? And the answer comes. God's faithful, amen? It's a short answer, but it's a comprehensive answer. And it's the beginning of changing this man's life. Go home and read chapter 2 and 3, and watch how his faith changes from this answer. Then the answer comes. But first, before the answer comes, in the midst of seeming confusion, there's this first step of faith. He says, I will take my stand on the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The prophet who represents all true believers, he represents faith. We're on a learning curve. The first thing is he waits. He waits. 
Do you know, I think it was MacArthur that said war is 90% waiting. War, battle. Most of the time, you're just waiting. It's like football. Did anybody ever play football? I loved football. I remember my coach telling me, do you know football is an hour long? There's four 15-minute quarters. Out of that hour, there might be four to six minutes, maybe, at the most, of actual contact. The rest of you just wrestle around, but the, the actual contact, maybe four minutes, six minutes at the most. When you think about that, you say, oh. And so it is here. The first thing he's called to, he needs an answer, God's given an answer, and he's called to wait. But he'll wait patiently, not impatiently. He's going to wait himself as a warrior on a tower, expecting news to come from the front lines. At any moment, an answer is going to come. He's waiting on a general. The general is sending an answer from the front lines. Habakkuk's on the tower. He's waiting. He's the watchman on the post. He's put himself there. He is now taking seriously the command in chapter 1 to look and see. Same words. In chapter 1, he just saw something in front of him. His Jerusalem, his Judea, local violence, local corruption. God says, look and see at the nations. Now he's on his watchtower. Now he's getting a bigger perspective on God's kingdom come. He's looking at it from a different... He's, he's, he's like, oh, this is much bigger. Let me get on the tower. Let me perceive from a bigger locale of what's taking place in God's world. He now gets a, a, a panoramic view from his tiny personal complaint to a broader understanding of life in God's world. God is concerned about the details of your life. He's concerned about the details, the intimate details of passing a test, making a grade, paying a bill. Whatever it is, he's concerned. But that's all caught up in a bigger narrative of human history moving to a new heaven and a new earth. And as much as we don't have to forget that he's involved in the details, we can never forget that we're involved in a greater narrative. Amen? Yes. Christ didn't come just to die for a couple of details. He came for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness reigns. And that's the direction of human history. Habakkuk is finally growing up in his faith. He's getting a panoramic view from his tiny personal complaint to a broader understanding of life in God's world as God's person. That was the first and one of the first lessons he had to learn. He knows God will answer. And so what does he do? He does what God says. Even before he gives the detail, God tells him to write it down. I'm not even going to tell you the answer yet. Write down the answer. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he, so he who may run, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Another lesson he had to learn was God's answers aren't short, quick, get out of trouble answers. You know, remember you played Monopoly? Remember you got that card? You remember what the card was? Get out of jail card. 
That's what we want, right? Don't we want God to, to, to get out of jail card? Here I am, God. To get me out of jail card. I, I, get, get involved in my life. It's messy. You know, I'm, get out of jail real quick. But you know, you learn no lessons when you get out of jail. Jail's a reason. You gotta learn a lesson. Christians who wait learn lessons. If God answered something immediately every time, you and I would learn absolutely nothing about life in God's world. It would be all about our world. There's universal scope in God's answers. It spans decades, it spans centuries, and it spans millenniums. But as he says, it'll come. Though the wheels of justice turn slowly, they turn. The long arm of the law reaches out. God's answer comes. Write it down that you and other believers should know. Write it down. They're instructive to all true believers throughout the century. Nothing has changed. Good versus evil question. Good will conquer evil. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Learn this lesson. Wait. Those who wait upon the Lord shall not ever be disappointed. You're waiting on God for something. You'll never be disappointed. Ever. Though it waits. The nation of Israel had to wait. It was going to span somewhere between 80 and 90 years until the Babylonians came only maybe six, seven years later. It's on the eve of destruction. They carried off into Babylon. And then the word that came through Isaiah the prophet, they came back to their land. It was for a time. They had to wait. But it came. And all those ones who were dragged off into Babylonia, they would have read this and they would have held on to faith that it's for an appointed time. God had to discipline the forefathers. God had to bring discipline. But at the right time, he's going to come and deliver us back to the promised land. And he did that 90 years later. God is true to his word. Waiting on God in any area of life is part of living by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Waiting is probably one of the hardest parts of being a Christian. Waiting. We don't want to wait. But how do we take our waiting? Do we take our waiting as Habakkuk did? Do we position ourselves with expectation that God will answer us? That's the posture that God wants to get us to. That God's word said it. And I'm going to hold him to his promise. Though I'm hurting. And I'm confused. And I'm dismayed. And I don't understand it. I'm going to hold God to his promise. The answer at first seems sublime. Almost foolish. Here's the answer. Two sentences. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He does it in negative. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. The positive is, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now we know that from the three times it's mentioned in the New Testament. And we think, well, it's just salvation. But Paul is using that to show the extreme expression of salvation. That it is by faith. It is by waiting. 
It's by trusting in God's promises that makes us righteous, that we're righteous in Christ. Here, the whole New Testament says that, but there is a principle here that Habakkuk had to learn. In Habakkuk's dialogue with God, it is hard sometimes to know who is he speaking about? Who, who is this puffed up one? Is it the Babylonians? The wicked nation? Is it the, the wicked Israelites? Or is it both? Some scholars think it's just the Babylonians. Others think it's both. I personally think it's both. And we see here, whether it's the arrogant Israelites or the arrogant Babylonians, we see an important lesson for life here. And I don't want you to miss this. This really ties into today for you and me and what we're going through politically and what we see going on in America, especially as Christians. Habakkuk was first concerned about the wicked in Israel. Then he had to learn to be concerned about the wicked Babylonians. But God is not concerned about the wicked Israel. He's not concerned about the wicked Babylonians. He's concerned about the wicked. Period. That's everybody outside of Christ. This is not about them against us. This is not about, well, we're a little less wicked than they are. Anyone living in unbelief, any nation living in unbelief, then the one true covenant with God through Jesus Christ is wicked. Grandma, wicked. Grandpa, wicked. Elliot, wicked. He's the exception. He's the exception. Sin is stored up in the heart of a child. We're wicked. Here's a lesson. Please hear me when I say this. Habakkuk had to get out of God just bless us scenario and realizing that God was dealing with a much broader wicked situation than Habakkuk could have ever thought in those one sentence in that one sentence he is puffed up within his own heart is the characterization of unbelief whether it's in Israel or whether it's in any other nation and God's not getting courted involved. I'll take your side against them. God is against it all. Remember Joshua when he went over the the the, uh, the river Jordan, and he went into the and, and right there he saw the man with the flaming sword. He saw the, the Lord of Hosts, and he said, "Are you with us?" And he said, "No. You got to be with me. Not about you. Are you on my side?" Paraphrasing. Joshua had to get a revelation that it is about God's will and God's purposes for God's people in God's world. The Christian today has to get a greater perspective. God is not in the, is it Hillary or is it, is it Trump? Unless they're born again, they're both wicked. They're both wicked and they're both puffed up in their heart. And I'm saying that from a, it might sound arrogant, but I'm not saying that. The point I'm making is that we have to get caught up in a revelation that Habakkuk is saying. What God has given to Habakkuk. And here's the answer. The righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk, don't get caught up in the drama of what's taking place. Live out your life in this world, in my promises. Trust in me. The righteous man lives by faith. 
He is righteous in his character. He is righteous in his conduct. He is righteous in his ethics. He's living a childlike faith in God, the author and the perfecter of his life. He's not getting caught up. Destruction is coming and Habakkuk can't stop it. The armies of the earth can't stop it. But the righteous man will wait on the Lord and live by faith. God doesn't deal on a spectrum. Anyone who does not live for God in personal relationship with through Him, whether the Old Testament covenant or the New Testament covenant of grace, is in rebellion against God. And God shows us what the heart of all unbelief is. Their heart is puffed up within them, means arrogance. It means someone's saying, when God comes to somebody with the gospel, when you talk to somebody about the gospel, you might not get it right away, but what someone is saying is, I don't need Jesus Christ. In this world, or the next. They might be kind. They might be civil. But God doesn't see that. God sees they're puffed up in their own heart. They rely only on themselves. The righteous, on the other hand, lives by faith. Instead of getting caught up in the drama of the day, the righteous saint keeps their eyes on God, the author and perfecter of their faith, and they depend on him and his word in a wicked world. They simply live in a trusting relationship with God throughout all the trials of their life personal and all the trials of their life national. They don't get caught up in their, they don't get caught away from their relationship with God. They don't get caught up following the puffed up hearts of arrogant men. They know it is a bigger narrative in this world. Ultimately, the showdown between good and evil will only be brought to an end when Jesus Christ comes back a second time, period. That is it. And to prove to us that God is serious about bringing peace to all men only through the Savior, even when men built that tower in the desert, Babel, and they had all things in common, and there was nothing that man could not do. It it sounded good. The narrative says that there was nothing man couldn't do that he put his mind to. You would think, well, that's, 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 pretty, good, that's pretty good work. But God saw something different. God came down and confused their languages. Because at the center of it, it wasn't God and it wasn't Christ. It was man. We'll never see peace on this earth the way we want it. Only when Christ comes back. It's written in his word. But does that mean we do nothing? Of course not. We pray and we witness. And we pray for leadership to make right choices. They govern men. We did that Thursday night here. Of course we get involved. What it means to the whole end somehow through our prayer and our living. But the righteous lives by faith. We, we live with a total dependence on God. I cannot put my trust in any man. I cannot by necessity find myself hoping that this is the one that's going to save the day. I can't do that. Do you understand what I mean? And I'm watching Christians running around. This has to be it. They have to get in. 
And like, and I say it in a sort of joking, caricature way, but it's deeper than that. Have we read and have we run to Christ? Write it down that he who reads may run with the legs and arms of faith and grab Christ who alone is the leader of all men who alone is the prince of peace who alone could be shalom to your heart he alone can do it let me read an excerpt excerpt of one scholar on being righteous from this text. The righteous are those who are courageous enough to accept God's word of promise in a world dominated by the horrors of Babylonian power. Do you see the, the, the world in the grips of these horror powers, these struggles going on today? He's saying here, the righteous are those who are courageous enough to believe and accept God's word of promise no matter what we see in this world. The righteous live by faith. We come here with our little Bibles. We sing our songs. They laugh at us. They think it's a joke. They read the news. They're horrified. They're all scared. They're all angry. Here we are. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Simple childlike faith. That's what, he, that's what God's telling Habakkuk. Simple, go sing your silly little songs. The righteous live by faith. So much so that Jesus says, when you see these signs come, do not be alarmed. They are just the beginning of birth pangs. It's going to get bad. Whether it's now or 100 years from now, it's going to get worse. He goes on to say, to look for salvation, the righteous are those who look for salvation in a world dominated by persecution and terror. The righteous are also those who live, whose lives correspond to God's leadership, not man's. The righteous are not perfect, but they do live according to their relationship with God. To be righteous means to meet the demands of relationship, he says. Righteousness towards God involves a strong ethical dimension. It is to meet the demands of God towards him and towards other people. The first two commandments, amen? Amen. Faith in God was the key to consistent living. Even though violence abounded and justice was perverted, the key to consistent living was faith in God, not our eyes on the dilemmas and dramas of life. That's God's answer. Habakkuk, keep your eyes on me. I'll settle your heart. And you can get on to do what you were called to do. Live righteously with me and with others. That's the end of the quote. Let me close up. While Habakkuk's world and the world of the faithful were being turned upside down, they were called to keep their eyes on the promises of God along with loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving the neighbor as yourself. That sounds too super spiritual, but if you're familiar with 1 Peter, go home tonight, please go home tonight, five chapters, read it if you have the ESV, read the introduction, read the reason it was written, and read 1 Peter. 
And you will see a persecuted people being called to remain steadfast, holy, and humility to God. Don't get caught up in the drama. Just live it out. Live out your faith in Jesus Christ. No matter what the world does, no matter what the government does, live out your faith. That's what 1 Peter is all about. Let me just go into fast application. Waiting on God. It's part of being a Christian. It's a part of life of faith. But waiting on God under fire. This is faith under fire. That's hard. It's really, really hard. But it reveals so much about ourselves. And it reveals so much about who God is. Our perspective of God, like Habakkuk, gets bigger. It gets grander. It it, it starts to overwhelm us and to consume us in a a, a good way. In Habakkuk's case, it revealed the man who was willing to stand on a watchtower and wait. He was confused, yet he was confident. We shall not die. I don't know how it works out, God, but I know in the end the gospel shall prevail. I don't know what's going on in America. I don't know what the future brings, but there's one thing I know, dear Lord Jesus, that the gates of hell won't prevail against the gospel of Jesus Christ. That alone should say amen for every saint. If I perish... I perish. Two. In the Old Testament, the purpose of such political upheavals is to turn God's people always, remember this, turn God's people's hearts back to God. He would use political upheavals. And we're praying for America, and we do. Please don't understand. You know my heart. But judgment starts with the house of God. And that means God loves us so much. He wants to bless the church. And if it takes almost the eve of destruction type of life, then so be it. The righteous live by faith. Then we gather with our lanterns, we gather with our our candles, and and we go outside in the dark and we worship God. We worship Him. That's where our joy comes from. Childlike faith and a simple devotion to Christ. Number three. The purpose of God bringing hardships personally or nationally are for the same reason. I'll close with this. We all have to go through some sort of cognitive dissonance in our relationship with God. All of us have to come to the reality like hell is a real eternal place. Everybody is going. Except those in Christ. Total depravity. Nobody is righteous outside of Christ. Everybody wants to live and mold God into their image. They want God to be their local little deity. They want God to be, bless me. Abortion, homosexual, only one way to God. All these things, we're all going to go through these trials in our life. And, and we got to wait like a, 
like, uh, like a watchman on a post, and we've got to wait for God's answer. He'll be faithful to give us that answer. Whether we're praying for our nation, we're praying over personal things, God is faithful. It's, the answer is in His Word, and by His Spirit, He'll make it real. Please go home, read First Peter, the first, read those five chapters. Go home and read the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 in Habakkuk, and watch a man's whole demeanor change. From one of confusion and complaining to one of absolute, wholehearted devotion to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, God. It's always challenging us, God. It's it's always eye-opening, God, as you get us to look and see outside of ourselves when we see the problems of life and you see what's taking place in America. And I am asking you, Father God, to bless Sonship Ministries. I am asking you that we be a people who simply live by faith in you, God. The righteous shall live by faith. We will vote. We will do whatever we have to do. But most important, God, we will be a people that cry out, God, in destruction. In judgment, remember mercy, God. We are interceding for this nation, God. Save her from herself and raise up a standard and send out Christians, Father God, to friend and foe to tell them the good news that the righteous shall live by faith. In Jesus' name.